a question. <clears throat> Where are you? Seems to be an eternal one. And it's not a geographical question. It's a biographical question. It's not asked for God's answer. It's asked for our benefit. So that we can look at our lives and see where they are in relation to God. And come to find out if that's where we want them to be. We are talking about finding God's purpose for our lives. We will spend a whole year doing this. And therefore, we have the great luxury of being able to not have to go on to run to another subject just because it's on the preaching schedule. Last week, when I talked about the covenants, I became aware as I conversed with you afterwards that many of you had never heard of these covenants. That was the first time you'd ever heard of them, let alone had them established in your life. And I don't want to go on until you establish these covenants in your life, until you have a chance to do that. Now, let me review just for a second. We have said that the purpose of God, we're taking a look at the big picture here. Before we get to our purposes, we look at the big picture of the purpose of God. The purpose of God is to make a people for himself. I got a very helpful note this week uh, from Bob uh, Foster. I need to to hear what you're hearing. I think I know what I'm saying, but I never know what you're hearing. And Bob said, you know, when I hear that, Bob is a Christian counselor, he says, I picture a lot of unhealthy parents, codependent parents, who are raising their children for themselves in not a healthy way. Raising their children because they need their children and they want their children to need them Maybe you need to expand a little bit more on your definition. Good idea. Because I don't want you to be confused with that kind of parent, confusing that kind of parent with what God's doing. God is raising a people for himself, making a people for himself, so that they might experience his love and the joy of living out his character. Let me tell you something very helpful I read a couple of weeks ago. The difference between agape love and eros love. I'd never seen this before. I can't remember yet where I, where I, where I saw it. But eros was defined uh, as, this is the world kind of love, eros, from which we get the word erotic, is a love that seeks people because it's empty and it wants to be filled. But it can never get filled enough. It just continues to seek them in order to draw from people what it needs. Agape love, which is God's love, is a love that seeks people out of its fullness in order to give. Its character is to give. It is so full it wants to share. That's the kind of love that God has, and that's where the covenants come from. And that's why God is making a people for himself so that he can give to them. And when we receive of that kind of love, then we want to give to others. Because we have the inherent fullness. There is no lack there. The only way for that fullness is to come through God. Now, we said last week that the way he did this was to initiate covenants for his people, which just happen to be the same elements that are required to build any intimate relationship with anybody. And I want to go back over those one at a time. And I want to make sure that you have had an opportunity in your life 
to establish that covenant for yourself. Let me give you a scripture that gives you the right to do that. Turn to Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. Because some of your immediate response may be, look, these were promises that were made to people way back when in preparation for the Jewish nation, given to the people of Abraham, they were for them. They are not for me. Didn't the cross clear all this stuff up? No. Look at what it says. Verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. In other words, whatever was given to Abraham is yours. You are heirs to it. And so these covenants are yours. Now, let's go to the covenant of hope. Let's begin at the beginning. Covenant of commencement, I call it the covenant of hope. Verse 15, third chapter of Genesis. It is so wonderfully ironic that Satan comes to pull people away from God And the curse on Satan has within it the promise he hasn't succeeded. I love that. God says in the middle of the curse upon the serpent that out of the woman's seed will come someone who will crush your head. In other words, you will ultimately be defeated. You can't have these people. You, there is a people who is, who is, who is, who are coming up and you can't have them. They're not yours. Or you can nip at their knees. You can't have them. The covenant of hope. Now, I can't believe how many people I see in a given week that are so distraught that they are almost giving up hope. It's a dynamic that is so widespread in this society and is because hope in the world has been connected with how the world's going. Do you have hope? I don't know. Can you see how it's going to come out all right? If you can see how it's going to come out all right, then you have hope. We're kind of like the little kid who went into the to the to the pet store and his dad told him to go ahead and pick out a puppy. Well, there was one puppy in there whose tail just wagging like crazy. And the kid pointed right at that puppy and he said, I'll take that one with a happy ending. <laughs> That's what we want for life. We want the one with a happy ending. See? We keep our hope on the circumstances. God's hope is deeper than that. And Satan knows if he can steal our hope, he doesn't have to do anything else. It's kind of like a, an emotional AIDS disease. The littlest thing that comes, can come in can knock us over. See? It doesn't, it, he doesn't have to act directly on us. He can just steal the buoyancy that keeps us healthy. Some time ago, I read uh, an article about Jane Goodall, who was the, the gal who went and lived with the apes and the gorillas in Africa and studied them for her lifetime, and and spent time with them, got to know them. And there was one herd of African gorilla that she spent uh, so much time with, and she named them, and she knew them, she knew knew their personalities. This one gorilla was a great matriarchal figure. She was a great leader in this herd, and and she died. She had had many children that had had been uh, raised and... and, uh, and she died, and the whole... Gorillas don't take death well. When, some, when a gorilla dies, they come over and try to get it back, to go back to life, you know? And for a while, 
that's what they did with this beloved, her name was Flo. Flo, they tried to get her to come back to life. and, And when she didn't go, they decided it was time to go on with their lives, all except for one of her sons, Flint, who was very close to his mother. And he spent extra time with her, and, and this absolute countenance of despair came over this animal. And as he walked, drug himself back to where the rest of the herd was, he just sat in a stupor for days. Meanwhile, the, the team of human beings had gone and taken flow away so they, they could... They could experiment or they could, they could research her body, do an autopsy so that they could benefit the rest of the herd. And after they had done this, one day Flint got up and walked back to the place where his mother had died. And he searched all around and she wasn't there and he just sat down for days. And when they came back one day, he was there dead himself. They did an autopsy on Flint. You know what they found? The only thing they could find in that animal's body was a virus that had in every other case been benign to a normal gorilla. But because of the hopelessness and the despair and the depression of this animal, that virus that was usually benign was enough to kill him. That is an absolute true picture of what hopelessness does to us. And why Satan wants to steal our hope. Not because he himself wants to attack us, but because the very thing that we usually will take is not that big a deal, seems suddenly overwhelming and unconquerable to us. And we're ready to give up the ship. The opposite, on the opposite end, there was an an Arctic explorer, Sir Ernest Shackleton. He was an Englishman. And on one of his exploration journeys, he left a part of his crew on a place called Elephant Island to be there for a few days to do some experiments. And he said, we will go get supplies and we will come back for you. This island was one frozen wasteland. And as they went to get the supplies, a great storm hit. The sea froze over. They couldn't get back to him. They tried again and again. Finally, on about the fourth try, weeks and weeks later, they went back. This captain wouldn't give up his men. He loved these guys. He wouldn't give them up. No matter how long it took, he'd go back for them. They went back expecting to find everyone starved to death. What they found instead was a group of people not only alive, but all packed up ready to get on the ship. As they got on the ship, the captain looked at one of the men and said, What happened? One of the men said, You know the guy you left to be in charge? Every day he'd get up and say, Boys, this could be the day that our leader comes back for us. Got to get ready. We got to get ready. He's coming back. We got to get ready. So for weeks and weeks and weeks, that's what they did every day. They counted on the return of their leader. And they lived in that hope. You know what? The captain's coming back. The captain, and I don't mean just physically. I mean, he's, he cares. He's not going to let you be stranded on Elephant Island. I mean, this seems to some people like Elephant Island down here, a vast wasteland. But he's coming back. 
You've got to count on it. For your health, you have to count on it. Why? Because he's made plans for you that are good. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. And those of you who have not yet seen this scripture, I'd, I'd sure love it if you'd memorize it. It would, it would benefit you greatly. Jeremiah 29. Verse 11. Look at what it says. I know, this is the Lord speaking, I know the plans that I have for you. Now this, by the way, is to the Israels in exile. They're living in a strange land. They haven't got access in their everyday life to things that connect them with God. Does this sound familiar? They feel like they're out there all alone. Look at what God's saying to them. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity. Some versions say for good and not for evil. To give you a future and a, look what it says, hope. Memorize that. God has plans for you. These are not things that are just written for the ages. These are written for you. This promise is written for you. Look in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. And look what it says. 15, verse 4. It says, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instructions. For our instruction, I'm sorry, that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we may have hope. You know, there is, there is a, there's something when God ministers hope to you in His covenant that doesn't go away. It doesn't demand your belief. It doesn't, it doesn't demand your trust. It just sits in you and makes you pop up whatever storm comes. It is. Emily Dickinson wrote a poem one time. I can't remember the whole thing, but I can remember, I can murder the first stanza and the last stanza. And, and it was so cute. Hope is a thing with feathers that perches in your soul and sings a tune without the words and never quits at all. I've heard it in the chilliest land and on the strangest sea. Never yet in extremity has it asked a crumb from me. See, that's hope. It's just something God gives you as a testament to his mercy, even in the midst of guilt and condemnation. And he wants you to have it. Let's go on to the next one. And I'm, I'm going to pray in a little while for, for you who are really discouraged. Let's talk about the covenant of preservation for those of you who are in fear. covenant of preservation began with Noah. Genesis chapter 9, verse 11. Now, while you're turning to that, let me reset this. You know the story well. All of the animals and all of the peoples of the world have been killed by a flood. 
God comes to Noah after that flood and says, Now I establish my covenant with you. All flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. Now let me ask you this question. If you were Noah's great-grandchild, and there was a horrible storm, what would you think of? If you remembered the promise, you'd be okay, wouldn't you? Take it down a few generations. What if you are Noah's great, 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 great grandchild, and you've heard about the flood, but you never heard about the promise? And there comes a great storm in your life. Are you going to be frightened? Absolutely. That's what I see today. I see a lot of people in the middle of a storm, never heard the promise. And the promise is, God will not destroy the earth. There is some sense of security that God will give us what we need to develop a relationship with Him and not cut us off in the randomness of the chaos of world events. There is that security. Why? Because we earned it? Because we're smart? No, just because it's the nature of God. There comes something totally different from what we're used to. When I was smaller, when I was, a, when I was younger, I used to go down to... Quit it now. Stop that. I've either got to change my language or stop telling childhood stories. I actually was smaller, if you can believe that. One year I grew, one year. But when I was tiny... Stop it! <laughs> Beck, can I give these guys detentions? <laughs> okay, when I was very young, Mom and I used to walk down to the middle of Shelby, Ohio together. Dad had the car. We lived about a mile away from town. It was an easy walk on the sidewalk. Now, for those of you who are from the north, you remember sidewalks. You... You remember how, in the north, sidewalks weren't just one level plane of things. I mean, big chunks. You know, when, you, when, you, when the roots grew under the thing, the big chunks of the sidewalk, they weren't level. Well, you can imagine a kid in his mom's hand. And, and you know a boy. You know boys. They want to kick everything in sight. I mean, girls do this. Boys do this. So if there was a stone, or if there was a, if there was a can, or if there was a gum wrapper, you'd just kick it out of the way. And then you'd stumble over that big crack. And, and every time, I, so I went down the whole way to town stumbling. And every time I'd stumble, I'd grab one of my mom's hands so I wouldn't hit the pavement. See? And the whole walk was stumble, grab, stumble, grab, stumble, grab, stumble, grab. My mom, who weighed 90 pounds soaking wet, strong though. Always hold me up. I remember, though, coming to probably the only dangerous intersection in Shelby, Ohio, where cars were going by. And I remember the marked change in our relationship because I remember then her hand tightened around mine. It was no longer I who was holding on to her. It was she who was holding on to me. That is the covenant of preservation. Not because all of a sudden we can hold on so well, but because God 
holds on so well to us. There are great fears I face in my life periodically these days. And I remember how that hand holds on to me. And I don't have to believe. I don't have to have faith. I don't have to have... It's just God's preservation of my life. That's the covenant. I can remember going into my mom. I was always a bloody mess. My dad died when I was four years old, and my mom was a single mom having to raise us. And so it's not like I could go to my dad. Every time I get in a fight, every time I fall fall out of a tree, Jimmy Jackson, that boogerhead, hit, hit me with a brick. I mean, sailed a brick at me one time. And I'm standing there. Have you ever had this? Where you're just looking at a brick come to you. And you're thinking to yourself, I probably ought to duck. But you don't. You just watch it. Here it comes. Bonk. Big brick. Man, I ran home crying. By the time I got home, my eye was swollen out to there. And I ran in. My mother had a beauty shop in our house. And I ran in, and she has all these ladies fixing her hair in there, and I'm running in a big eye out there here, you know, blue. And I went and threw the direction. I can't even say it. And she said what she always said. She looked at me and she said, You'll live. <laughs> she always said that to me. Drove me nuts. Sometimes that was good news, sometimes it wasn't. (laughs) But there was kind of a covenant of preservation there. Just a word that says, you know what? You're going to go on from here. You're going to live. I don't know whether it's going to be all right or not, but I can tell you this, you're going to live. That's God's word to us from things that seem like they could destroy our world. You'll live. Look at, look at Isaiah chapter 54. Just in case you think that that particular scripture is, is just for Noah's time. Again, this is God speaking to the Israelites. Verse 9. For this is like the days of Noah to me. See, it's an ongoing theme. It's an ongoing promise where it is part of God's character. For this is like the days of Noah to me. When I swore that the waters of Noah should not flood the earth again, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Let me ask you this, if you're in Christ, what are you afraid of? If God is for you, who or what can be against you? There's a covenant of preservation. I want you to hear. It's yours. And you have every right and obligation to be able to have that sitting in your heart so that whatever tries to make you afraid can't shake that thing. All right, let me tell you one more time. Uh, let's go to the covenant of chosenness. Yeah, um, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. 
And then I'm going to read out of Genesis 17:7, like I did last week, where it's restated in a covenant form. This is the covenant I call the covenant of chosenness. Some people call it the covenant of promise, but I, I, I really believe it's more a sense of chosenness. Now the Lord God said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that... There's, there's, a, there's always a so that, see? This is the purpose of God. So that you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, in, verse, in chapter 17, 7, it says this. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants. After you, your descendants after you, throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant. Now, who are his descendants? According to Galatians 3.29. We are, right? All right. This covenant is for us. Your descendants after you, throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. This is probably one of the toughest for people to get through their heads because many people can't understand that God can choose a people and initiate a chosenness that we don't have a part of because of our ability or our capacity or our usefulness or our goodness or some other quality that we have. It is so difficult for people to think that they're a member of the team because God chose them instead of because they were the only ones that had the, br the brains to sign up. Most Christians think they're a member of the team because they're the only ones who really got it through their head that they couldn't handle their life, so they sign up with God. I'd like to believe that I'm smarter than most of the rest of the world. I don't believe it. I really have to come down to the awesome, inescapable, biblical sense of chosenness. And it's terribly frustrating because I have no idea why I was chosen. And you probably have no idea why you were chosen. If you're in Christ, it was God's idea. Jesus said it to his disciples a long time ago. John 15, 6. You didn't choose me. I chose you. That you should bear fruit and that your fruit should last. But why us? We haven't got any more capability than the rest of the world. There's all kinds of unbelievers running out there who have more capability than I do. More stick to it of this, more, more of everything. Why me? Why you? Let me tell you a story. When I was in seminary, I used to ride my motorcycle. I had a motorcycle the first couple of years, and then I had to come up with money for classes, so I had to sell the bike. I'm still not sure that was the best bargain. But I rode my motorcycle to a place in Indianapolis called, I think it was called Eagle Creek Park. Now, at this time, I was totally unattached. I wasn't around family, didn't have friends, uh, or, or at least close friends. Um, wasn't really attached to a church, so that I was very involved in the life of the church uh, uh, as, as a pastor, uh, although I, I worshipped every week. Um, anyhow, I used to go out to this park and just 
just watch people. Sometimes I'd go out and I would witness to people. There, there was a big river running through the park, White River, and I would baptize people in that river. I used to love to do that. And, uh, but it was, a, it was a neat place for ministry. And sometimes when I was just tired out, just a neat place to hang out. Go sit under a tree, you know. One Saturday, I, I got up and just for some reason was wide awake and I wanted to go to the park. So I went to the park, sat under a tree, just watching the people. And there was this huge pavilion there that began to fill up in what was very evidently a family reunion. And this was the neatest family to watch. I mean, I had so much fun. They were goofing off together. They were laughing. They were kidding one another. I mean, they had a lot of body contact. I wanted to, I was so lonely. I wanted to go over and join, you know. Hey, would you adopt me? I really, but I was shy, and so I just thought, I'll sit here and watch. About an hour into this gathering, in walks one fella that is not happy about being there. His name is Harold, and it is quite evident that this is his wife's family. And his wife wanted him to come, and that's why he's there, but he is not about to enjoy this. The other thing that is really bugging him is he has to go into work. I'm listening to all this, see. He has to go into work that day, and he's not at all happy about it. And you can tell because he has... I mean, he, this poor guy... Remember the brown polyester pants that used to have snags and pulls all over them? Poor old Harold had these brown polyester pants. had balls all over his pants. Brown wingtips, white socks. He had a tie that was off here and a, a yellow shirt with at least two days of breakfast on it. This guy was just an absolute mess, and he was so mad at the world. Mad he had to go to work. Mad he had to be at this stupid reunion. Mad, mad, mad. Well, he had about five kids. And he was looking for some place to vent that anger. You know displaced anger? You know how that works? Of course we do. And, he, and as in most families, he zeroed in on one kid. And I, and I figured out later the reason he zeroed in on this kid was probably because this kid could take it better than anybody else. Because as I watched this thing unfold, this kid was really the spiritual leader of the family. His name was Bobby. He was about 15 years old. And I watched this dad come and ream this kid out for a solid hour. I was so angry I wanted to go out and deck this guy. Not a good... I wasn't really spiritually mature at the time. <laughs> Not a good attitude. But he, you know, Bobby, I can't believe you bonehead. You haven't got this stupid hamburgers cooked. Bobby, weren't you taking care of your brothers and sisters? Bobby, weren't you helping your mother? Bobby, weren't you doing And everything he'd say, Bobby, just go do it. Never talked back once. There was a sense in which I felt like Bobby really knew how bad his dad was hurting and how inadequate his dad felt. Well, at the end of the lunch... It was the family annual softball game for men. See, this was kind of a rite of passage game. Because there weren't kids involved. You had to be like, a man, you know, 12 or what, you know. So therefore, all the guys go out and line up. Now, let me just inject here. The most emasculating, one of the most painful Barbarous practices we have in this culture is choosing up teams. <laughs> I can tell you from a guy's perspective, 
during basketball season. <laughs> this is not a good thing. I can tell you from a guy who wants to assert his masculinity that the thing that continues to run through your mind when you're standing in that line is, Oh God, don't let me be chosen last. And if I have to be chosen last, don't let the team gripe because they had to take me. It's an awful, awful thing. Well, see, old Harold wasn't even out there. Man, old Harold didn't want to be out there. For crying out loud, that was his wife's family. He didn't want to be out there. He didn't like baseball anyhow. He was the only guy, adult guy, who wasn't out there. And, of course, this family being the warm, exuberant, joyful family they work up there, come on, Harold, we really need you. Come on, Harold, come on. Well, it was, it was obvious, you know, that this guy was not a baseball player. I mean, he had a Michelin the size of a truck tire hanging over his... And he just was... So after enough coaxing, come on, we really need you because it'll even up the sides, you know? So it comes out, you know, his old bally polyester pants and wingtips, two-day breakfast shirt on. And they toss him, <laughs> they toss him a mitt, hits him in the chest, he goes like that, misses the mitt. Whoa, yeah! And he goes and takes his place at the end of the line. And he's staring straight down at the grass. And you can hear what he's thinking. Well, they need captains, so they selected two, and Bobby was one of them. And they tossed the bat. Remember how we used to do that? Toss the bat, you catch it, and your hands go up the bat, and whoever gets this gets to choose first. And Bobby gets to choose first. Now, I was watching this, and I'm thinking to myself, if I was Bobby, I would let that old guy dangle in the wind. <laughs> and I would justify it as God's justice. Bobby did not hesitate. He said, I'll take my dad. I wish you could have seen that guy's face. It made his life. Why are we chosen? Not for our ability. Not for our good humor. Not for our spiritual maturity. But because God sees a son or a daughter, and He says, I'll take my boy. I'll take my girl. Why us and somebody, not somebody, I don't know. I just know that we are. I want to have a time of prayer so that you can sense these three covenants in your life. I would like you, first of all, everybody to stand up. And I want to pray for those who specifically and especially need to sense one of these covenants. It just hasn't locked into your heart yet.
First of all, I'd like to concentrate on the covenant of hope. And I would like to give you out of 2 Corinthians a, a, a scripture that talks about God's intention. Now may our Lord Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. See, this is another one of those gifts by grace. Comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. All right, I want to pray that scripture for you right now. I would like, however, if there are those among us who are really discouraged right now and having a very difficult time finding hope, I wonder if you'd be brave enough to sit down where you are right now. Go ahead and sit down so that we can specifically pray for you. You're having a tough time finding hope. Right, You're really discouraged. Go ahead and sit down. Okay, for those of you around people who are sitting down, I'd like you just to lay a hand on them. And we're going to pray for you as your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is God's will. This is our encouragement. Would you all pray with me as God would direct? God, we know how Satan wants to make everything seem overwhelming, the future dark. We also know it's not true. In Jesus Christ, there is hope. And all of us would pray together as a church family that you would go into the hearts of these people and you would establish the covenant of hope. And that you would like that feathered thing. Sing the tune without the words. And never stop. Give them buoyancy because they know the plans that you have made for them are good and not evil. And you have the power to bring those about. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, stand back up. Now I'd like for any of us that have something that has struck fear into their life lately, some event, some possibility, that you are thinking, boy, my world could get destroyed here. I mean, this is very fearful for me. Would you please sit down right now? Go ahead and sit down so that we can pray for you also. It's a privilege for us to be able to pray for you. Anybody who has been struck by fear lately. All right? If you have people around you sitting down, put your hands on them and let's pray for them. God, continue to tell us that if you are for us, nothing can stand against us. We are more than conquerors through you. Please administer right now the covenant of preservation, knowing that their worlds will not be destroyed Help them to hang on to that promise so that they know that they have the time to build their relationship with you and they have time to serve the purpose for which you, were put, for which you put them here. Let them not listen to the voice of Satan that says they are threatened. They are not threatened. If they are in Christ, they are not Satan's at all. Close your hand right now around theirs so that they can feel 
your security. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, stand up one more time. One more. There are those of you who go through life thinking, I'm just like everybody else. I mean, how I live my life, no big deal. I mean, it's important for me, it's important for those who love me, but as far as God's eternal purpose, come on. I'm just, you know, I'm just an average Joe, I'm just an average Jane. Chosen? That's hard for me to grasp. Would you sit down right now, if you're one of those people? Okay, thank you. It it really helps us to pray for you. All right? Put your hands on those folks that are sitting down. God, again, we ask you to establish your covenant in the hearts of these people. Let them know that they are not an accident, nor are they at the mercy of their own abilities, nor will they ever achieve out of their own capabilities. But you are calling them to a sense of special chosenness in this world because you have decided that they are chosen. Give them a sense that they have that connection with you, not because of themselves, but because of your decision. And let them know that you are close to them all of their lives and you have made them for a purpose. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.